And thank you, Christina, for leading us in a time of prayer. Uh, I'm convinced that in those moments of receiving from the Lord, it's kind of as Paul prayed for the church in Ephesians, I pray that you would be filled with his mighty inner strength. And there are times when we wait before him that we're receiving things that we don't feel, uh, we don't see, but the fruit of it will be maybe later in our week. And so um, you receive it by faith. And so thank you for taking us through those times. I know there are some of you watching us online that um, are experiencing uh, either COVID in your homes or you have close contacts and the, the frustrations and the fears and the anxieties. And so we're just believing God to fill your hearts, your homes with peace and for all of us. Uh, we are in a time right now that is unlike any other time that any of us have ever experienced. And I think God's word speaks to it and we're gonna get right into it. So today we're gonna get back into our Trust the Story. We have been out of the series for the month of October, talked about a few different things, had some guests with us. And uh, going into the year 2020, uh, as a leadership team, the, the goal, the vision for this year was to be a people of the word, to know the word. Um, and it wasn't just enough to know it a little bit, um, be familiar with it, but really dig into it, know it, study it, and see the big picture of it. Because a lot of times we'll take a little piece of the word <clears throat> and apply it to a situation in our lives but if we don't keep it in the context of the story God has been telling since the beginning, we can misapply it. And it has been misapplied throughout church history. The word has been used to slaughter entire people groups in the name of Jesus. Yeah, church history. Um, some of the, the times of church history have been dark times when we've lost the overfull, overarching story that God has been telling and we misapply his word to our lives. Or we try to apply it to someone else's life for them instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to be that guide and that help for them. And so this is what we've been trying to do, just kind of look at it. The temptation is to dig really deep into some of these books, but when I'm gonna to preach today on the book of Philippians, which is my favorite book, so the temptation um, is just gonna be to dig in, but I'm gonna to try to give you just an overview of what Paul has been saying. Hopefully, uh, you've gotten the messages and you read Philippians in preparation for today. And hopefully um, you're following along, enjoying some of the things that I'm putting on Slack, the other resources. I did put a video by the Bible Project that just supplements some of the things I'm sharing, some of the things we're reading, and from uh, Frank Biola's book, The Untold Story, and uh, trying to give us a, that full grasp. And next week, we're going to read uh, the book of 1 Timothy. And so if you want to reread Philippians and read 1 Timothy this week, Pretty short books, you could probably do both. And uh, so it would probably be good to do both. And so the book of Philippians is what we're gonna dig into. And as we've talked through this series, I've talked about the gospel of the kingdom. And the gospel of the kingdom is what Jesus preached. It's what the apostles preached. It's what the, the apostle Paul preached. And we today preach a gospel um, in the, the church in America specifically, we have preached a gospel where it's the gospel of the forgiveness of your sins so that when you die, you go to heaven. Now, that message is a part of the gospel of the kingdom. 
But that's not the whole gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is a full surrendering of your life and any allegiance to anything other than Christ and giving full allegiance to him. The reason that this wasn't really well received, and especially in places like Philippians, in Philippi, is because it goes against the idea it's treasonous. In the Roman Empire, you're preaching a different king and a different kingdom other than Caesar. Um, You could be killed for that. And many of the disciples were killed for that because they were preaching a message that, that there is a God other than Caesar. And we're going to put our allegiance in that kingdom, not in the Roman Empire. And Caesar in the Roman Empire didn't like that very much. And Philippi is a place where a lot of retired military went to live. And so imagine retired military hearing this message. I mean, they gave their lives to the Roman Empire to build it. And they're proud of that. And now someone comes along and says, you know, you got to give your allegiance to King Jesus and his kingdom. Um, A lot of the reason the church in Philippi is suffering that we're going to see, that's that message is kind of rubbing these people the wrong way. But when we give ourselves to God, when we come into his kingdom, I believe the scripture teaches us that we have been restored to the commission to put God on display on the earth. It's no longer, I'm just living for myself, but I've added Jesus to the package, and now I'm just a moral person, but I'm basically making my own decisions. My life, from the moment I come into the kingdom, my new mission is to put God on display all the time, everywhere, every decision. And it doesn't matter whether I work in a government job or an education job or a healthcare job or I'm a small business owner. It doesn't matter what my job is. My kingdom calling, the upward call of God, is to put God on display. And I put him on display in everything that I do. And this is what Paul is going to tell or remind the Philippian church about. And he's going to actually press them into that. And so today, I've titled the message, I Want to Know Christ. I want to know Christ. Because as I read the book of Philippians, you're going to see I differ just a little bit from um, the, the Bible project and how they break out the, the things that Paul is, is teaching or writing in this letter. But um, I believe that Paul's main emphasis is knowing Christ and being found in him. That's what it's all about, this entire letter. And uh, hopefully you'll see that when we come to the end. This is going to be Paul's last letter to a church. Um, He's going to write 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. He's going to write Titus, but those are two individuals, not to a full church. If you think he wrote the book of Hebrews, then you're going to think that that's his last letter. Um, But I think this is Paul's last letter. He's in prison when he writes it. Um, You can't think of prison like our prisons. Uh, Roman prisons are not a good time. Um, It's a very dark place. It's a um, very deadly place. Disease, pestilence, um, starvation would be real things if you don't have people caring for you or meeting your needs outside. I mean, the Roman government, it's not up to them to make sure you get food, okay? Maybe it's up to your family to get food into you, and sometimes they have to pay the guards to get food into you. So it's a very corrupt system. So Paul is not in like an American prison system. You got to understand that. There's debate whether he was in Rome or Ephesus. Doesn't matter. Neither prison would have been a great place to be. So one of the three things that um, I think Paul emphasizes throughout this letter or that we see over and over is the affection 
that he has with this church. The connection, the word partnership comes up often. So there's a partnership and we see it right away at the beginning in Philippians chapter one. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's going to be important because they're facing opposition from people outside the church, facing opposition inside the church. They're suffering. There's all kinds of stuff going on. But Paul is like, no, I am confident God is going to finish. Even though you are like, I don't think he's going to finish it. God is going to finish the work he's done in you. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, I'm guessing as an apostle, you're not supposed to pick a church that's your favorite. But I think Paul did. <laughs> I mean, you don't hear this language in any of his letters. I mean, this is his first church. And as we're going to read in just a moment, they were the first ones to support him and they have been faithful to support him and care for him. There is an affection that has happened. There is a mutual concern and a love for one another. And there's this commitment that God is going to complete his work in Paul's life. And in that church's life, we can trust the story. Philippians chapter four, he says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in one, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. What Paul is teaching them, see, they've gone a long time without being able to send Paul money, but now Paul has gotten money from them. It's going to keep him in prison. He's thanking them for it in this letter. But he's saying, I have learned whether you send me a gift or not, I just have to learn to be content whatever circumstance I'm in. This is something that the church, especially in America, needs to hear. The, Paul will say this to Timothy in, in next week's letter. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We have got to come to the place as a body, as an individual in Christ, where I get my identity from him and not from what other people think of me. Where I don't need to be recognized for my efforts by people, I need to be recognized by him. Because if we rely on other people to build us up, if we rely on other people to fill our tanks, if we rely on other people to give us an identity, we will come up short eventually. Because here's what I know about all people. We're fallible. And nobody can give us the identity that we need, the contentment that we need. No marriage partner, no child, no parent, no anybody. And we have got to be rooted and grounded. Now, that does not mean that we isolate ourselves from people. In fact, the only way we can really gain a good relationship with people is when we're content and have our identity in Christ. Otherwise, the moment someone hurts us, we'll isolate ourselves. The moment we perceive that someone's against us, we'll run away. 
That's how it works in human relationships. So when we get our identity from Christ, when we get our contentment from him, then whether people serve us or don't serve us or whether people recognize us or don't recognize us, we know he is with us. He's what empowers us. Paul goes on and says, it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. I love this, um, that Paul often <laughs> compares other churches and their giving, and we're like, in the world today, that's, you shouldn't do that. But apparently Paul got away with it. So I don't, I don't understand. But what he's saying is, you guys have been with me from the beginning and you're the only church that has been with me from the beginning. Like this affection is deep. When I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. See, Paul's like, no, I don't, I don't need your money because I learned to be content in God. But every time you give to me, I recognize it's God working in you. And so when you give to me, I know you're going to be blessed because you have recognized the need and you've given to me. And God sees those gifts. They're a fragrant offering acceptable to him and pleasing to him. So there's this affection, this connection, this partnership. Then there's this idea that we need to have joy in suffering, joy in suffering. Paul is gonna use the example of Christ. He's gonna use the example of Timothy. He's gonna use the example of Epaphroditus. He's gonna use his own example, that this is the call as believers, that we find joy even in hardships and suffering. Now, we don't have time to look at all of those examples, but we'll look at a couple. Philippians chapter one. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, so his imprisonment, his beatings, all of the stuff that he suffered, has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So in other words, Paul's like, people are seeing my imprisonment and how I'm handling it, and it's empowering them because they're, they're worried about being in prison. They're worried about suffering if they preach this gospel, but they're watching my life, and as a result, they're being empowered. So I'm not sad that I'm in prison. I, I'm, I mean, I don't like it. It's not my first choice, but God's using it. So don't be sad for me. I'm looking for the joy in my imprisonment. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Listen to these words. Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. I don't even know how that's possible. But others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is, in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. See, Paul's convinced what other people do, 
It's, gonna, it's all going to work out for my deliverance. <laughs> One way or another, God is using everything that's happening to me to work out my deliverance, whether that means freedom from prison or death and he's going home. Whichever it means, Paul's like, I'm, con- I'm cool with this. Now, I don't know how it's possible to preach Christ out of selfish ambition. I don't know. But Paul is saying they're doing it. These people are preaching the gospel in a way to actually harm Paul. And rather than Paul fight back, Paul's just like, the gospel's being preached. That's a huge statement that I wish we had time to talk about, but I'll just let you pray into that one this week. So, Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say it, rejoice Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This phrase, this idea of rejoicing in the Lord will be a recurring theme throughout the book of Philippians. Not rejoice in your circumstance, not rejoice in your mistreatment, rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because you know he will faithfully finish the work he started in you. And he does not need all of the people in your life to align so that his purposes will be accomplished. His purposes only depend upon me and you surrendering our hearts to him and realizing that sometimes it comes through miracles and provision and sometimes it comes through suffering. And both of them are going to be needed and both of them are going to be necessary. Then he sets up Timothy and Epaphroditus and himself to show that this is how God works and how do we live this out. But he starts, if you will, with someone even more important. So let's back up a little bit into, first, into Philippians chapter 1. And this is what Paul says. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay, listen to me, church. Whatever happens, whatever treatment comes your way this week, whatever happens on Tuesday, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Period. Then, Paul says, whether I come and see you or only hear about you, I know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Our calling as a church is to stand together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Now, let your gentleness be evident to all so those who oppose us should get our gentleness in return. This is a sign that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. But if we act like those who oppose us, there's no sign. The sign is we can act different. We can live in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ when we're mistreated, when we suffer. Everything doesn't have to work out well in my life for me to live this way because I have the spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead living in me. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, (laughs) but also to suffer for him. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had and the one that you now hear, I still have. Then he goes on in chapter two, the very next verse, 
And he says, therefore, see, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of gospel. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded. We're going to talk about that. Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. That doesn't mean having the same opinions. Do nothing Nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father." That was the example Christ gave. He never used every power that he had for his own advantage, ever. Not one time. And I guarantee you, there's not one person listening to my voice today, myself included, that could say that same thing. In fact, we're really good at sugarcoating some of the things we wanna do and putting spiritual language on it and it's really just selfishness cloaked in religious language. That's a lot of what we sometimes try to do in the church world. But Paul is like, don't live that way. Don't fight back the way that you're being fought against. Live differently. Adam, remember him at the beginning? Wanted to be like God, so he ate the fruit. Jesus was God, and he emptied himself and became nothing for us. The kingdom advances through the power of the resurrection and through participating in the sufferings of Jesus. Paul is gonna show us that in Philippians chapter three. This is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. Whole Bible. I don't know why, it just has been. Ever since my encounter with God in Bible college, this has become my chapter. I love it. Verse 10 is my favorite. And I put it on the screen. I'll make some comments as we go through, but I put the Amplified up because it helps us to grasp it maybe a little bit more fully. Paul says, finally, and like every good preacher, he's going to say that word several times over the next two chapters. Finally, <laughs> finally, finally. But everything he said about Christ right before this, okay, everything he said about how we should live no matter what happens, he says this now. Finally, my fellow believers, continue to rejoice and delight in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble for me. And it's a safeguard for you. Look out for the dogs, the Judaizers, the legalists, Look out for the troublemakers. Look out for the false circumcision. Those who claim that circumcision is necessary for salvation. For we who are born again have been reborn from above. 
spiritually transformed, renewed, set apart for his purpose. We are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory and take pride and exalt in Christ Jesus. We place no confidence in what we have or who we are in the flesh. Though I myself might have some grounds for confidence in the flesh if I were pursuing salvation by works. Many of Paul's letters, this is what Paul says. They're like, you don't just need to be saved by faith. You also have to be circumcised. You also have to follow the law. You also have to do these things. It's not just your faith in Jesus. And Paul is again saying, I live that way. That's not the way. If anyone thinks that he has reason to be confident in the flesh, that is, in his own effort to achieve salvation, I have far more. Circumcised when I was eight days old, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, or an exemplary Hebrew. As to the observance of the law, a Pharisee. As to my zeal for Jewish tradition, a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness, supposed right living, which my fellow Jews believe is in the law, I proved myself blameless. Now, when Paul says blameless, he's not talking about perfection. He's not saying I was perfect. He's saying before the law, before the human standard, I measured up. I was blameless. You can think of it this way. You might say, I am blameless before the law in driving my car. And that would mean you've never been pulled over. You've never gotten a ticket. You've never violated something. And and so you're blameless before the law. (laughs) But you're not a perfect driver. (laughs) In fact, if we ask your spouse or your kids or anyone who's ridden with you, they'll tell us where your flaws are in driving because we all have them. So Paul is not saying I'm perfect. He's saying according to the law, I'm blameless. But he's about to say, none of that matters. Now, let me first talk about this idea of circumcision. I've heard many a sermon preached on what the circumcision of the modern church is. And there's a lot of different ideas out there, but let me just sum it up this way. Anything that makes us self-reliant, anything that makes us self-righteous or self-satisfied would be the circumcision of the church. When we start to add to our salvation, our own works, our own ability, when we start to think, well, I'm in right standing with God today because I feel like I'm in right standing with God and I've, I've held up my end of the deal pretty well. Or we look at others and we think that their behavior is not as good as mine, so they're really not in right standing with God. They can't be. I mean, look at some of their behaviors. Look at some of the things they're doing. And what we tend to do is get blind to the areas of our lives where we're not measuring up because the scripture's pretty clear. No matter what standard you want to pick to try to measure up, every one of us falls short. None of us can do it. It's all by the grace and mercy of God alone. And Paul says, I've been in this tradition where I've tried to get my righteousness, my right standing, my feeling that I'm good with God from something other than Christ. And I now, look at his words, whatever former things were gains to me as I thought then, these things once regarded as advancements in merit, I have come to consider a loss absolutely worthless for the sake of Christ and the purpose which he has given my life. But more than that, 
I count everything as loss compared to the priceless privilege and supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and of growing more deeply and thoroughly acquainted with him a joy unequaled. It's all a loss. In fact, the word loss is the word, it's actually a vulgar word for dung. Yep. That's what Paul says. That's what I consider it. It's dung. It's refuse. I, it's the smell of the open sewer in the, the city of Rome. That's what I consider my righteousness, which kind of falls in line with what Isaiah says because all of our righteous acts are as filthy rags. For his sake, I've lost everything. I consider it all garbage so that I may gain Christ. If you don't come to the place where you don't rely on self anymore or yourself for your own salvation, you can't gain Christ. The only way to gain Christ is to come to the end of yourself and recognize I need him. He is my only salvation. He is my only righteousness. He is my friend's only righteousness. He is my enemy's only righteousness. It's all in Christ Jesus. That I may be found in him, believing and relying on him, not having any righteousness of my own, derived from my obedience to the law and its rituals, but possessing the genuine righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith and this, so that I may know him. That's what Paul says. I want to know him. And he's going to tell us later on, I haven't come to this yet. I haven't reached this yet. I want to know him. And that word know is not just I want to study the Bible, get the facts about him, put them in my head, change the way that I think. I want to experientially become more thoroughly acquainted with him, understanding the remarkable wonders of his person more completely, and in the same way, experience the power of his resurrection, which overflows and is active in believers, and that I may share the fellowship of his sufferings by being continually confused formed inwardly into his likeness, even to his death, dying as he did, so that I may attain to the resurrection that will raise me from the dead. That's a mouthful right there. And I would tell you, read that over and over again this week until you really, really begin to understand it. I don't even know if I understand it. But let me break down just a little bit of it. Paul says, I want to be found in him. I want everything in my life to look like him, to be like him. I want my responses to be like him. I want my attitudes to be like him. I want my Facebook posts to be like him. I want everything in my life to be like him. And the only way that's going to happen is through experiencing now the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. That word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. We, if you've been in church a while, you know that's the word we say for fellowship in the body of Christ. We've been called to fellowship with each other, koinonia. So it's kind of out of place there. It doesn't really make sense there. Paul's, the Philippian church is probably wondering, why did he pick that word fellowship? But here's what he's done. He's taken the definite article. And if you know a foreign language, you know the definite article, the, the power, the fellowship. 
And he's tied them together with one definite article. So in other words, what he said is the power and fellowship. The power and fellowship. So he's intertwined these in a way that they cannot be separated. Sometimes you're going to look for breakthrough in your life, and it's going to come through the power of the resurrection. And we love that. Oh, the power of the resurrection, heaven come to earth, healings, miracles, all of these things. Yes, believe for them, trust in them, pray for them. But sometimes the power of the resurrection is going to show up in your life through the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. You're going to pray for breakthrough, and you're going to experience disappointment but you've been given the power of the Spirit not to fall into a pit of despair, not to get angry at those that are trying to seek your demise, but to live in the power of the resurrection that makes you live like Jesus. And when he went to the cross, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and he did not open his mouth. He did not retaliate, but he entrusted himself fully to the story that God was telling from the beginning, and he trusted that he who began the work in me will finish it. That's the power of the resurrection. And that's the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And we have got to come to this place where we live in this awareness that we are in his presence. I've told you before, Brother Lawrence is like my favorite dead guy. Brother Lawrence, one day, just wandering through the, the, the woods in the winter, sees a dead tree in the winter, and we know it's not dead, it's dormant, and he realizes for the first time in his life that that tree isn't dead, but it's awaiting the, the silent hope of spring so that it can sprout. And sometimes there are things in our lives that look dead, but for some reason, for Brother Lawrence, this tree was like, whoa, God's grace, God's sovereignty. I know that he is at work in my life even when everything looks dead. I can trust him. I don't know. For you, it might not be a dead tree, but for him, it unlocked something in his heart. And so he entered a monastery because he wanted to suffer for Jesus. And he started suffering by, by fasting, by praying, by taking the vow of solitude, by really pressing in to know God. And he found God in his presence. But what he became frustrated with was he would go into those times of solitude to experience God, but then he had to do chores. He had to work in the kitchen. He had to do other cleaning. And he's like, I don't want that time in the, the solitude to be one way and the time out here to be another way. I want to live in this full awareness. Not that you're going to enjoy washing the dishes and not that you're going to enjoy this stuff out there, but you are no closer to the presence of God in that secret solitude place than you are in the dish room. And he's like, I want to live in that fullness, that awareness all the time. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. I want to know Christ. I want to live in this unbroken fellowship with him, that he's more than just an add-on to my life, that my life is not compartmentalized. I want to live, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us continually approach the throne of God's grace with confidence. Why? Because I don't approach it on my merit. I approach it on Christ. And when I come to his throne, I receive mercy. You know what mercy is? It means you don't get to be punished. Every time you and I come to the throne room, we deserve punishment from God. But every time we come, if we have the blood of Jesus Christ on us because we've entered into fellowship in his kingdom... We get mercy 
because his blood speaks mercy to God. That's what God sees. So we get mercy or we receive mercy and we find grace. And you and I, it's not about getting up in the morning and having a quiet time. It's not about just every once in a It's about learning to live in that continual place where I recognize no matter what I'm doing, no matter where I am, no matter how I'm being treated, I am in the throne room and I am getting mercy. That's going to be important because you're going to have to give mercy because some people are going to agitate you. They're going to fight against you. They're going to mistreat you. And if you want to treat them with mercy, you got to picture yourself in the throne room getting mercy so that you're ready to give mercy. Because if we don't give it, we don't receive it because we haven't recognized that we need it. So we live in that awareness, and it doesn't matter how you feel. You live in the awareness of that mercy and that grace, that empowerment, that resurrection power to do whatever is necessary in that moment. All right, two more passages. Not that I've already obtained this, this goal of being Christ-like or have already been made perfect, but I actively press on so that I may take hold of that perfection for which Christ Jesus took hold of me and made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider I have made it my own yet, but one thing I do, I forget what's behind, I reach forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the heavenly prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We have mistaken translated that verse at times to think that heaven is the prize. Heaven is not the prize. The upward call of God, the union with Christ Jesus, that is the prize. And that is the prize right now. You can enter into that union and you can continue on that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But far too many American Christians, I just want to say a sinner's prayer and go to heaven. I just want to try to be a good person. I don't know if I've really want to surrender everything. I don't know if I'm really into this laying down my life thing and suffering so that others can come into the kingdom. And that's the gospel of the kingdom. And you need to count the cost. And if you're not ready, he's like, I'll be here when you are. But that's the gospel of the kingdom that Paul preaches to this this Philippians church. Then he goes on to tell them, there are many, I've told you, that even with tears, they live as enemies of the cross. They reject and they oppose this way of salvation. Their fate is destruction because their God is their belly, the worldly appetite, their sensuality, their vanity, their glory is in their shame. They focus on earthly and temporary things, but we are different because our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await the coming of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's gonna come from there. You can go to, here's the thing, you can be a church-going person sitting in a pew for the rest of your life and still be an enemy of the cross. Because if the goal of our lives is only to satisfy our own temporary desires, we have not yet yielded to the cross. The cross is lay your life down. Paul has modeled, Jesus did it, I did it, Paul said, Timothy does it, Epaphroditus does it, and then he turns to two ladies. Therefore, my fellow believers whom I love, I long for, my delight, my joy, my crown, my wreath of victory, in this way stand firm in the Lord. I urge 
Yoda, and I urge Seneca to agree and to work in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, I ask you, my true companion, to help these women to keep on cooperating, for they have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Delight, take pleasure in him. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit, your graciousness, unselfishness, mercy, tolerance, and patience be known to all people. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious or worried about anything, but in everything, every circumstance and situation by prayer and petition and thanksgiving, continue to make your specific requests known to God and the peace of God, that pass, the peace that reassures the heart, that peace which transcends all understanding, that peace which stands guard over your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus is yours. So Paul brings two ladies that he's heard are argue, there's a division among them in the church. And he doesn't tell us what it is. So what we can ascertain from this is it's something that's temporary and not something that's eternal. It's not some level of false doctrine that's splitting the church. It's some level of disagreement. And Paul says, you, ladies, you've got to find a way to come together. And he tells the whole church, come on, let's get these people together. Some people think they were disagreeing with Paul. And that was what the disagreement was about. The way it is, I don't think that's what, I think they were in disagreement. Well, what are they arguing about, pastor? Maybe they were arguing about politics. Maybe they were arguing about whether or not to wear a mask. Maybe they were arguing about what type of program the church should be using. What type of music the church should be singing? What type of location the church should be meeting at? I mean, there's all kinds of things they could have been arguing about because still today there's all kinds of things in the church that we argue about that are temporary things. Temporary, all of them. Because none of them are going into eternity with us. They're not. Programs for discipleship, not going into eternity with us. I don't know that any of our music that we sing right now is going into eternity with us. We'll have to wait to see what the angels have been singing since the creation of the earth. Maybe none of our favorites will be there. I guarantee you that no kingdom of this earth is going into eternity. When we go into the kingdom, it will not be a democratic republic. It will be the kingdom that has existed from the foundation of the earth that Jesus secured and made. So these things are important. These things we wrestle with. These things we have strong opinions on. These things are temporary. And Paul says, ladies, come on. Stop it. As I was preparing for this message, just indulge me for just a couple more minutes. As I was preparing this message, I started thinking back over my life. All of the people that have sewed into my life, my mom, my dad, uh, Royal Ranger teachers, Sunday school teachers, children's church teachers. And do you know... Do you know what I knew then and I still know today? They were not perfect people. They weren't. I mean, I could tell you about the flaws of my dad. I could tell you about the flaws of my mom. I could tell you flaws about deacons that I saw in my church growing up. I could tell you flaws about my youth pastors, my pastors, the people who serve. I could tell you flaws about college professors. I could tell you ways that I think doctrinally they're wrong or maybe attitudes of their heart or things that in their ideology that are different. And yet all of them were needed to shape my life. And I could have at any moment 
disqualified any of them from speaking into my life because they didn't have everything right. Well, you have that sin in your life, or well, you have that imperfection, so I'm not gonna let you speak into my life because we don't agree fully. If you have to agree with someone fully to let them speak into your life, you will be the only one speaking into your own life. That's just the nature of it. And the longer we try to sit at a table together, the more we're gonna realize we disagree on stuff. And that's okay. The Apostle Paul is not telling these ladies to come to a place where they agree on whatever it is they're disagreeing on. We look at one mind and we're like, hmm, what's that mean, one mind? They must have to all come to the place where they all have the same opinion about this ideology. No. Look at the words again, harmony. Harmony. That means you believe this, I believe this. We've got to find a way to at least, even, the, even until we come to a place where we maybe can agree that these things make good sound anyway. Where we keep working for the common good. We don't have to agree on this. Let's work for the common good. One gospel. Let's do that. I mean, we cannot let this be a dividing issue. The only thing that should ever divide us is what he said in chapter three. If anybody preaches another gospel other than the salvation through faith in Christ alone, put them out. Otherwise, let's sit at the table and try to figure this thing out. Because while I know the word of God is infallible, the people who read it, study it, and try to apply it are not. And we need each other in order to get this full picture of who God is. I want to share one quote with you, and then we're going to pray. Because I'm not going to pretend that this hasn't been a crazy election season. It has been. And the, it really always has been. It's just always kind of like this. It's just maybe the stakes are getting higher and the divisions are getting deeper which if we had listened to George Washington at the beginning when he gave his final inaugural, inaugural address, um, we would not be here. Because he warned if we had two political parties, they would divide our nation and they would cause foreign influence in our government. Hmm. Smartest guy who ever lived probably. Um, but we didn't listen to that and so here we are. But recently, a pastor from Minneapolis, John Piper, wrote his conviction. And I watched as the Facebook world threw John Piper under the bus, threw, called John Piper all kinds of names. He can't even be a Christian. He's totally off the mark. I don't know how John Piper can be this wrong, blah, 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 blah. Then his friend, Dr. Wayne Grudem, wrote an opposing article to John Piper. And it doesn't matter whether you prefer John Piper or, John, or Wayne Grudem, and doesn't matter which one I think is better, but what I want to draw attention to is the last paragraph. This is gold. Finally, Wayne says, just as John Piper in his article modeled respect for those who have another position, so I also respect him for the courage and clarity of his convictions and for his characteristic willingness to advocate a potentially unpopular position because he thinks it is right. I hope that in what I have written here, I have modeled a way to disagree with a friend 
graciously and in a way that will not damage our friendship in the future. This is the best part. P.S. After I finished writing this article, I sent it to John for any comments. He replied that I had represented him fairly and he assured me that he counted me as a dear friend. He also pointed out how I could make one of my arguments stronger. <laughs> it's an argument against himself. You hearing this? I think that only someone with a strong confidence in the sovereignty of God over all history would do that in the midst of a serious disagreement about the future of a nation. I think that is what Paul was trying to get these two ladies to do. You don't have to agree on everything. Work together for the kingdom to move forward because that's what's lasting forever. So let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we need you. We need to know Christ and to be found in him. God, we want to find our identity in the works that we do for you. We're tempted to find our identity in the things people say about us. We try to find our identity in our likes on social media or the things that we believe in regards to politics, re regards to culture, regards to understanding the scripture or doctrine. And God, our identity needs to be found in you. God, none of us have every right answer. We don't have every right answer for our world today. We don't have every right answer about how to interpret the scripture. God, we need you and we need each other. And God, I pray for Restoration Church that we could be a church that stands out above other churches. God, I know that throughout the history of your church, we have failed to do this well. We have failed in times of disagreement to model harmony, to, to model oneness of mind, even when disagreeing. And so, Holy Spirit, show us how to do this. Show us how to come to the table with people we disagree with and to continue to work together for the common good of putting you on display for this world. To continue to be about redeeming mankind, redeeming this earth. God, working to bring about justice, working to bring about hope, working to bring about peace, lasting peace, true peace in the hearts and minds of every person we encounter. Holy Spirit, show us how to do this well. Show us how to restore broken relationships. Show us how to walk this out in our homes. God, right now where there is disagreement in homes, show us how to walk this out. 
Show us how to walk this out before a nation that desperately needs to see it. God, show us how to walk this out in this community to model this type of lifestyle, to live, God, whether in, whether in good times or difficult times, to live in that place of contentment, to live in that place of peace, to live in that place of joy, God, knowing that whether we experience the type of breakthrough that we were expecting or whether we experience some form of suffering or loss, that you are working for our good and you will be faithful to finish the work. So Holy Spirit, teach us to live in that place of full awareness of being in your throne room, constantly receiving your mercy, constantly finding the grace we need to live this out before a watching world. Holy Spirit, I pray this week ahead for every member of this body as we reread this letter to the Philippians. I pray that we would slow down, that we would let you speak over every word. God, that we would allow you to take its message and put it deep within our hearts and transform us into the image of your son. Bring us to that place of being willing to empty ourselves fully, to humble ourselves, to become obedient, even to the point of sharing in his death so that we might become more fully like him. So Holy Spirit, thank you for the assurance that you are going to continue this work in each and every one of our lives until it's completed. We trust you. And we want to yield to you in every way. Now, Father, over this body today, God, I just pray your blessing. God, I pray, breathe your peace over every home, over every heart, over every life. God, peace that passes understanding. Peace in the midst of turbulent circumstances. Peace in the midst of financial crisis. Peace in the midst of uncertainty. Peace in the midst of sickness peace. Father, lift up your countenance upon them. Be gracious to them. God, as Paul says that you had mercy on Epaphroditus and even though he almost died, you were merciful to him and you brought him back to health. God, may that same mercy be upon every member of this body that's watching, that's listening, that's in this room. God, be merciful to us, we pray. Restore each one to full health, we pray. And God, above all, give us grace. Give us grace that whatever happens, we would live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for joining us today. Um, 
we are 